Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 5 as we continue our working our way through uh, this book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 5, we'll be studying the whole chapter this evening. You know the old saying that the only two things certain in life are death and taxes. Uh, well, when you're young... Uh, we tend to uh, ignore both, and as we get older, uh, the more they both concern us. Tonight, our passage invites us to face what the Apostle Paul elsewhere calls the last enemy, death. Let me invite you to consider that from Genesis chapter 5. Hear now the authoritative word of God. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived, after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, after he fathered Jared, 830 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 
When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. We pray that you would lead us into a proper understanding of your word. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name. I want to speak just briefly to the context. Why is this chapter where it is? What's its place in the Bible? And then we want to think through the content of it. In Genesis 3, as we've previously seen, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, one of the great famous events of the Bible. And God, less understood, God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would now be two lines of humanity. As we studied that passage, we saw that God said to Satan that uh, he would put enmity between uh, Satan and the woman and between his seed and her seed. And then uh, he would crush your head and you would bruise his heel. In the midst of that promise, he says there, is, there are two seeds or offsprings or lines of descendants that are going to come One, the seed of the woman, and the other, the seed of the serpent, or Satan. The seed of the serpent would be aligned with Satan in the rebellion and against God. And the line of the seed of the woman would be what? Would be rescued and realigned in her orientation away from rebellion and with the Lord against evil and the enemy. And so we've seen these two lines begun as we begin in chapter 4 to see the battle that comes between them as Cain kills Abel. And why does Cain do so? John in 1 John tells you because he was of his father, the devil. He was evil. He was aligned with the enemy. And so he sought to destroy Abel, the seed of the woman, and he, he killed him. And then in Genesis chapter 4, we saw uh, the playing out of that whole line of Cain. All those descendants that, that, that fell from Adam through Cain to Lamech and his family. And it's the line, the family line of the seed of the serpent. It's the ungodly line. How was it characterized? What were they like? It was characterized by hard hearts toward God and cruelty towards others. Though capable of astounding creativity and achievement in music and arts and with tools and industry. We looked at these things last time. 
though capable of such greatness, we might say, and achievement and glory, yet they were destitute of God's saving grace because they had turned their back on him. And so they were also capable of terrible evil and violence and revenge. Cain's descendants even boast of it, as we saw previously. And then there's just this little ray of hope at the very end of Genesis chapter 4. When at verses 25 and 6, it says, well, there was the birth of another child to Adam and Eve. This time, Seth, who replaces Abel. Because Abel had been killed by Cain. And in the time of Seth, it tells us people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's a ray of hope. And now what you have here in Genesis 5 then is the line of the seed of the woman descending from Adam through Seth all the way to Noah. It's the line of what? It's the line of belief, of of grace. And so we want to consider this line. What is it characterized by? And I want to say it's characterized by four things, and that I think will help us outline the chapter. The line of uh, the seed of the woman is characterized by fallenness, frailty, friendship, and faith. I want to unpack those four things with you. In the first place, we see in verses 1 to 5 that what characterizes the line of Adam through Seth through Noah is fallenness and the bible reiterates that in verses one through five it says here we're reminded of it that this is the book of the generations of adam and when god created man he made him in the likeness of god male and female he created them and he blessed them and he named the man when they were created and when adam had lived 130 years he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image And named him Seth. What's going on here? Well, we're being reminded, friends, of of both the dignity and the fallenness of humanity, even in the godly line. Uh, It's a welcome reminder, isn't it, (laughs) that God made man in his own image. I mean, after after hearing of Cain's murdering his own brother and and then mocking God for thinking God... for for thinking that Cain should even care about that. and And then Lamech... Uh, belittling his two wives and and uh, causing them to fear with great anxiety because he's such a violent man that he would kill a boy who simply insulted him. Okay, it's a welcome relief to be reminded at the end of that that God actually created mankind in His own image, not evil. This chapter begins by reminding us of the inherent dignity of humankind. He made us, God made us to be like him in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. To, to what? To think good things like God thinks them. And to love the kinds of things that God loves. And to live, we might say, the way that God himself lives. This is what we were made for. And this dignity we are reminded here encompasses both male and female. Don't forget, it's as if the writer is saying, that, that it isn't as if God made men good and women bad, or that he made women good and men bad. He made them both, male and female, in his image, and it takes both male and female 
to express what it means to be human. The old Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said, Therefore, between the sexes, there is not that great distance and inequality which some imagine. And so God named them both. And and it, it tells us here, and it reminds us that both are called man, or mankind, if you will. It was God's idea to put them under one common name. Why would he do such a thing? I think, at least in part, to emphasize our unity, even as we are different from one another and complement one another. Men aren't women. Women aren't men. And yet, in God's mind, by God's design, by his call, by his naming, he's saying to all of us, well, the men can't say that alien creature woman is what's wrong with the world. And the woman can't say men are just beasts and away with them. God says, no, you are of one kind together. You are of the God kind. That's the language of Genesis 1. In God's image we are made, not after the image of animals. So we're reminded of our great dignity, but then we are reminded that Adam is now fallen. And his nature is changed. It's not what it was. He began to think what was evil and to love what was evil. And then to do what was evil. And when he has children, what are his children like? He has a son, it says, in his own likeness, after his own image. Seth, we might say, is a chip off the old block. Or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The image of God is still there. Don't misunderstand, but it is marred. It is twisted. And our children, and we're all children of somebody, all of us are not born neutral and we're not born blank slates upon which we can write what is good or what is evil. We are not born good, no. No parent ever had to teach their children to sin. (laughs) They do it by nature. I never had to teach my children to lie. Nor did my parents ever have to teach me to lie. But I have to teach them to tell the truth. Why is that? Because we're all born in sin. As as King David puts it in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not saying, don't misunderstand him, he's not saying his mom did anything wrong In the conception of him. But that David, like everyone, is born to sinful parents. uh, And except for Jesus, is born with a sinful heart. So Paul will say in Romans chapter 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By Adam's disobedience, the rest of us were constituted sinners before God. And being born in the likeness of Adam involved guilt and corruption. And so, so friends, what do we say? What do we say to the person who says to us and who insists, I don't need to change. My lifestyle is perfectly fine. What do we say to people who say to me, let me be me. This is who I am at the core of who I am. I was born this way, people will say. They'll say, God made me this way. Why do I have to change? 
And then I would say as Christians, we should take them to the argument of Genesis 5 and Romans 5, that God made mankind in his own image. But Adam rebelled. And fallen Adam had fallen children. And those fallen children need to be restored because the image is not what it ought to be. It's bent. It's marred. We need God to conform us to the image of his son. This is what God is doing with Christians. He is reshaping you and remaking you. You're a new creature and he's determined to make you just like Jesus. Like God's own image. So all of this, all of this uh, acts as a, a kind of reminder for us as we get into Genesis 5. That as we track the godly line from Seth to Noah, don't misunderstand here. We don't boast here in our lineage or we, or, and we don't trust in it. Why are there believers from Seth to Noah? Not because they inherited godliness from their parents like you inherit your hair color and the color of your eyes. But what? But that God worked by his grace in these people's lives. And praise God that he often chooses to work by his grace in and through ordinary families. This is what we so often see in the Bible. God's promise of salvation by grace through faith is believed by someone. We believe in the Redeemer, the promised seed, and we begin to pass on that promise. And it's meant to be passed on and to be nurtured and to be defended and to be protected and to be perpetuated from one generation to another, even through families. God delights to work that way. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, Abraham, the father of faith, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. As Peter told us in the New Testament, when he proclaimed the gospel at Pentecost, he said, this promise is for you and for your children. Uh, No wonder then Paul reminds Timothy in the New Testament that the faith that's in Timothy's heart first lived in his mother and his grandmother. And he actually learned the faith sitting in their lap. Because God ordinarily works through families. That doesn't mean people don't need to be born anew by the grace of God. But that God delights to pass on the faith one generation to another in very ordinary ways. So how vitally important then is it for parents, dads and moms to believe the good news and then to instruct their children and to pray with and for their children and to bring them to public worship to hear the gospel preached and so to include them in the life of the community of God's people. You can't make your kids believe, dear parents. I understand that. You can't believe for them, but you can trust God with them and commend Jesus to them. 
And God is pleased to work through that very ordinary believing family from one generation to another. I would guess that most adults in this room who profess faith in Christ do so out of a family in which either mom or dad or a grandparent taught you the faith and prayed for you. Some of us came from non-Christian parents, and it happens. God delights to rescue the perishing, but so often he works in very ordinary ways. And so what we need to see ourselves here, friends, is the dignity and the humility of being creatures made in God's image, yet born into this world after the image of fallen Adam with that image marred and yet capable of having that image of God restored in us by the grace of God as he conforms us after his son. So that's the first thing. It's the longest thing. It's the first thing you see here. Fallenness characterizes everybody. But frailty, secondly, frailty, and that I mean physical weakness leading eventually to death itself. The godly line of humanity here is liable to all the miseries of this life, including death itself. And we're reminded of that here, friends, even as we're reminded of our value to God. And I want to highlight the value first. Notice how God values his people. He names individuals in the dynasty of Seth, who they were, how long they lived, and the fact that they had children. And for some, nothing more is said at all. No achievements are highlighted, but God took note of them. The world at that time had recorded the most famous, the most prestigious, the most important You could bet it would have a different list than God's list. But these are the ones that God blessed and God graced and God knows them each by name as he knows all his people individually by name. And it tells us a little, friends, that these were in the line of Seth, that they raised godly children in the line of Seth. And it wasn't that their vocation didn't matter to God or where they lived didn't matter to God or what kind of car they drove didn't matter to God. Of course, all those things matter in some way. But what mattered most was that they were in the redeemed line, they believed the promise, and they raised children in the faith. That's what's highlighted. And God values them. Now, the question is raised, of course, did they really live this long? You know, this is astounding how long it says they lived. And my answer to that is yes. My answer to that is yes, that the text is written for us in Hebrew historical narrative and is meant to be understood as chronology. Moses recorded this because he understood that they did live this long. And later, as you read the book of Genesis, it specifically tells us that the length of the lives of people got shortened after the flood. I can't explain all the reasons why that happened, but in God's providence, it did so. And there was an advantage to living that long. And think of the advantage, friends. Their long lives enabled them to pass on the promises that God had made to them, even in Genesis 3, verse 15. So that Adam could sit around with his children, his grandchildren, his great-great-grandchildren, his great-great-great-grandchildren, and he could say, I walked with God in the garden, dear children, and God is real. 
and he is good. And I rebelled along with grandma. And God in his kindness and mercy promised us a redeemer and the redeemer is coming and we have hope. So they could pass along the faith. And, and yet, the passage tells us they were frail. And they all died. Except one. And God is saying to us what's happening here is not natural. Death is not natural. Death is not just the way things are, nor is it the way things are supposed to be. And he's saying to us by reminding us that God made us in his image at the very opening of the chapter and then telling us and we all died. He's reminding us that we have no one to blame but ourselves. I didn't create death, God says. I didn't bring it into this world. You did in Adam's first transgression. Don't blame me, God says. I even warned you that if you rebel, death will be the consequence I will impose. But you wouldn't listen, is what God is saying. And now, dear friends, do you see what the consequence of that was? Adam died, just as God promised. Satan said, you shall surely not die. And God said, you will die. And God proved Satan wrong. And as my old pastor put it, that proof that when God speaks, he speaks the truth, and that when Satan speaks, he lies. So this passage reminds us rather relentlessly that though they might believe in the Redeemer, yet they're still going to die. One after another, they die. And why? Because just like Cain They too are sinners, and the wages of sin is death, and all of us are liable to the miseries of this life and even death itself. You will not escape death, dear friends, unless Jesus returns before you die. It will happen to you, and God doesn't promise you 80 years. And the more clearly you see that and face that, and the less you pretend that you won't die or can't die, the better off you will be, friends. The more you'll put your hope where your hope ought to be. And we're always putting our hope in the wrong thing. John Calvin says, to nothing are we more prone than to dream of immortality on earth. Unless death is frequently brought before our eyes. And that's so important, friends. You won't get immortality on earth. So don't put your hopes in this earth. Not as things presently stand. Don't put your hopes in the here and now. Put them in God who gives life to the dead. And so we see something of here of, 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 of course, the value of these people to God, but of their frailty. But then we see, thirdly, friendship. The godly line is characterized by friendship with God, highlighted for us in verses 21 to 7, 27, by the story of Enoch. And we're reminded when it says that Enoch walked with God. He's an amazing contrast. He's the seventh in the line from Adam through Seth. He's in contrast to the seventh in the line from Adam through Cain, who was Lamech of the previous chapter. 
And that Lamech was a nasty, vengeful, ruthless murderer and polygamist. This Enoch, what was he? He was a friend of God. The phrase walked with God means intimacy. It means fellowship. It means communion. It's, it's a description of the true essence of spirituality. It's, it's a description of the very, the very point of being pardoned. The reason God promised a redeemer to these people and to us was not merely so that we could one day die and go to heaven, friends, but so that we could be restored to the happiness of the enjoyment of the very face of God in relationship with him. And enjoy knowing him and being known by him. This is what you were made for and are redeemed for. So often, though, we hear that the good news is basically, you know, how God gets you to heaven. God's willing to forgive your sins because of Jesus, we say, so that you can die and go to heaven. But that is not the heart of it. The good news of the gospel is that God is willing to forgive you because of Jesus so that you can be his and he can be yours so that you can be reconciled and restored to friendship. And so Enoch shows us that he for 300 years walked or more walked with God. And then it says, and God took him. Now, what does that mean? He was no more. God took him. It's an interruption of the formula that we have come to expect by the time we get to Enoch, right? The formula is he lived so and so many years and then he died. When you get to Enoch, it says not and then he died. It says and he was no more because God took him. So what is that? Well, uh, you might be tempted to think that's just some other way of saying that he died. But the best interpreter of the scriptures is the scripture itself. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, we read this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the writer of the book of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that Enoch didn't die. God took him up to himself. God brought him directly into his own presence, body and soul. Much like the experience, as you may remember, of the prophet Elijah. And much like the experience of our Lord Jesus after his death, when there was the reunion of body and soul and resurrection. And he went up into heaven. And though his family and friends looked for Enoch, they could not find him. And they were left to ponder what they did not have with clarity like you have it now because you have the rest of the Bible. They were left to ponder, ponder that there might just be this thing called life with God, even away from this world. And so in the face of what might seem the inevitability of human death, they're left to ponder that though sin and death have power over us, They don't have power over God. And God is greater than death and the grave. And there's the possibility of existence with God beyond life on this earth. And so Enoch was an object lesson for them. That there is hope. If you know the name John Owen, he's an old Puritan pastor. I think dean at Oxford or Cambridge at one time. He lay on his deathbed. And his secretary was penning a letter for him and wrote, I am still, writing to this friend, I am still in the land of the living. And Owen said, stop, 
change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. And that is so true, dear friends, that the point of being forgiven and the point of being a Christian is not simply to get to heaven, but to have relationship with God, to live in friendship and harmony with God. And then heaven will be not mysterious and unfamiliar, but it will feel like home because your heavenly father is there and you know him. So we see here friendship characterizes the godly line and finally we see that faith characterizes the godly line faith we see that in Lamech in verses 28 through 32 when it says that when Lamech had lived 182 years he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying out of the ground the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands so this Lamech here friends might just as well be contrasted with the Lamech of chapter 4, the Cainite Lamech and now the Sethite Lamech. Don't be confused. They're two different men. The one was known for his arrogance and violence, and this one is known that what he longs for is rest, God's promised rest. And so he names his son Noah in anticipation that Noah will give them Rest from the painful toil that was their discipline for sin. Why does he do so? Because he believes the promise of God that someone is going to come who will give rest. Now, I don't think Lamech had any idea in particular what God was going to do in Noah's day. But God did spare Noah through the flood. And Lamech's hope for redemption ultimately came through Noah's descendant, Jesus who comes to us and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, in conclusion, friends, we're here in this, this horrible count of death in this chapter. We're, we hear, friends, we hear it not without hope. None of us will escape, like Enoch, death in this life, unless the Lord comes back and takes us up just as he did Enoch. So you and I have got to prepare for that day in which we will meet our maker in heaven and we will give an account for the life that we, will li- we have lived. And the best preparation for that day is to face God now. Don't run from him, but run to him. Run spiritually to him and in faith seek deliverance in Jesus and rest in him who died our death and was punished in our place for our sins. And so then let us walk with Jesus now in friendship. And then our anticipation of heaven will be greater than that of a lonely college freshman longing for Christmas at home. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, uh, and I bless you that our citizenship is in heaven with you, purchased by Jesus, that you're our father and Jesus is not ashamed to be called our elder brother and you've made great promises to your people. And I pray that as death approaches us in this life, you would grant us 
to not fear, but to rest in you and to trust our souls to you. We pray that you would help us not put our hopes in this life, but in that which you have promised and guaranteed in Jesus. For we ask in his name. Amen. Let's stand together, friends, and sing, Abide with me.